quite a story, isn't it? I mean, I, I remember um, before the trials even started, Charles comes, comes here. He's usually here at 11 o'clock in the Sunday morning. And um, for weeks, I'd meet with him back there, and he would tell me that that's what he wanted to do through this, was to, to point people to, to Christ through that. And I remember praying with him and just saying, what a testimony it was. I don't know if any of you have followed that at all, or like in the newspaper, they had a great article in the paper just kind of following that. So do me a favor, would you, would you just pray with me? Um, just pray for Charles and that family. Lord, I just thank you so much for Charles and just the testimony that, that he has in, in his, his love for you and how much he wants that to, to, sh- to shine to others. And we just thank you for, for softening his heart and working on his heart to where he could forgive on these people. And we do pray, Lord, that through this, people would come to know you that maybe never would have heard of you otherwise. And we pray that you'll continue to, to be with his family, be with Charles, um, as they continue to, to deal with this um, in, in their lives. We just thank you for, for bringing a peace on them. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we could just leave now. I mean, that's pretty much a sermon in itself, I, I think. So, but we're going to kind of go through, um, we're going through the heroes of the faith, and Matt started on Abraham last week, and I figured what better place to go than to just somewhere else. So, so we're going to actually go through the book of Esther. So I need you to, to hold on because we're going to try to get through the entire book of Esther here in, in just a short time. If, you've, if you don't have your Bible with you, um, there's chair Bibles in front of you. You probably want to have those as we go through this. Page 384 in those chair Bibles. We're going to be looking at the book of Esther. Esther is kind of a, a book that, that I've always enjoyed reading. But years ago, a long time ago, I was going through a struggle of, man, I just don't really, I'm not excited about reading the Bible. I kind of went through this, this time where I was just like, I wasn't reading the Bible. I, I wasn't really just, I wasn't engaged spiritually. And someone said, hey, you know what? If you really want to get back in, just go to the book of Esther and read that. And that'll kind of get you going. And, and I went through and I have ADD to where if I, if I can read three sentences and not get distracted, then God just worked a miracle in, in the world. And I sat down and I read this and I read the entire thing. And, and I, I got done and I was like, what just happened? Because I don't remember ever doing that. And it was just kind of, it just captured you. This is a, a story that, that can capture you. And the thing that people um, always talk about in this is that God is never formally mentioned in the book of Esther. And you think, here's a book in the Bible and God's not even talked about in there. But as you, if we go through this, you're going to see how God's hand was working throughout the entire book. And, and so I just want to kind of get us started here by, by first of all, understanding that, that, um, I, I'm on my, my second or third phone that I've had, in, and they call them smartphones. And I don't know if it's, you have to be smart in order for, to be a smartphone, but my, my phone, like about a month ago, decided that it was just going to stop. And I, it would, I could power it up, and it would get to this whole, like, Samsung, and it would just sit there and do nothing. And so I was like, well, that's not going to help me at all. You know, unless it's a guy named Samsung that I want to call. Even then, I couldn't even call him. And I, I lost all my contacts. I lost all my calendar. I lost everything. And it got really frustrating. And I was just kind of like, 
oh, I mean, I, I used to think that I was a pretty calm person. And then I realized I wasn't. And little things, even like losing everything in your phone, because I put everything on my phone. Like, I, I used to have it to where, back in the days, some of us remember, like, you used to have to write stuff on a like paper calendar. That was so weird. But I used to do that. But then I said, I don't need to anymore. I've got the smartphone. So everything, all my, all my appointments, everything was, was on that. And so that just died. And... I was sitting, so I put on Facebook, I said, look, I need your contacts again, and if we had an appointment, I'm sorry, then I'm going to miss it, <laughs> because I don't remember. And so, luckily, I had a couple speaking engagements come up where they emailed me, like, the day before, and I was like, oh, yeah, of course, of course I knew that. And so, scrambled and made sure I was there for that. And so, I got it all, and I got most of my contacts back and everything like that, and I'm still kind of figuring out my calendar. So, last Sunday, I'm at youth group, and all of a sudden... My second phone, that I, that I, I just got a, a, a different phone, that decides it's just going to give up the ghost. And I had to go through the exact same thing like less than a month after that first one. And I was sitting there, I, I was just really, really frustrated. I'm sitting here trying to teach to our high schoolers, and I was just really irritated. And it came, I realized, I remember that when I was a kid, I don't remember it, but I know it had to have happened. I swallowed a giant magnet when I was a kid because anything electronic fizzes out when I'm near it. I will. I'll drive down the road at night and streetlights will just go out. Like I'll go under them and then poof, they they go out. And I'm like, and at first I was like, oh, that was just weird. Now it's just kind of like I expect it. And it's just, and so anything electronic, I I get my my laptop and I hear this all the time. and, And there's electronics in cars. Trust me, I know, because my mechanic or the person working on my computer, I hear this phrase all the time. Huh, never seen that before. I get, I'm getting sick of hearing that because it's always with anything that I own or that I'm around. And so I get to the point where I just kind of flip out at times. And I had another one of those moments today. My, my wife didn't want me to talk about it, but it's like once in a while I just kind of get to where it's like some of us, anyone relate to that where you just kind of get angry? And sometimes it's over dumb things. Well, tonight we're going we're gonna to look at King Xerxes. This is a king who's, who's the king in the book of Esther. King Xerxes had some anger issues. And let me just tell you how I know that, because if you look at history and you read about it, he, he ordered some bridges to be built because he's the king of Persia. And as the king of Persia, he is in battle. He's in battle with Greece. And so throughout history, Persia and Greece would have these battles. And at the end, if you've ever heard of this, this guy named Alexander the Great, he's the one that kind of decided that enough of this, and he, he finished it where Greece just kind of took over Persia. But in the middle of that, all those battles, is King Xerxes, and he ordered these bridges to be built between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean so that his men could get through and get over to Greece and attack. <clears throat> well, a huge storm came. And destroyed the bridges. So he has the engineers that built the bridges killed because they didn't do a good enough job. And then he has his soldiers go down. And when I said he has anger issues, he had anger issues. His soldiers, he took his soldiers and he said, I want you to go down the water and I want you to whip the water 300 times for insubordination. So you can imagine these soldiers are sitting and going, 
Okay. So they go down and they whip the water. And then the soldiers threw shackles into the water to bind the water and stab the waves with red hot irons. So this is, this is the king that we're dealing with here. Like, he gets pretty upset and he, he had, the dude had some anger issues that he had to work through. All right. So at this time, he's the king. The Jews at this time had just gone through captivity and they were, they were now being freed to where they were allowed to go back to Jerusalem. And they've been captive for 70 years. And so some of the Jews went back to Jerusalem. Others stayed where they were because after a while they just got used to where they were at and they said, we're now settled here. We'll stay here. So they got settled throughout the, the kingdom of Persia. And we're going to see why that, that's important here. But so if you've got your Bibles here, we're going to be in, starting with chapter 1. We're just going to kind of, kind of breeze through here. Chapter 1, we have the king. The king gets drunk. He's having a party because he's getting ready to go to battle. He's going to go to battle. And he has a party. He gets drunk. And he calls out his queen, Queen Vasti, to come out and to dance, dance for him and, and the, the men. The queen refuses to come out. She says, I'm not going to come out. Well, this, obviously, you know the king and his demeanor. This doesn't go over well with the king. And so he, he has her banished, basically from the kingdom. She's no longer queen. She's out. And, and so then, so now we have in chapter 1, that was, what's, what's going on here. She's, she's kind of deposed. And the two characters that come into play here now, one of them, you, you might guess, is Esther. All right, the, the book of Esther. And the other one is her cousin Mordecai. People have been always going back and forth. Was, was, were they cousins? Was he the uncle? And what it was, was Mordecai was her cousin. He's about 15 years older, but they're cousins. And Esther's parents died when she was young. So Mordecai came and adopted Esther and basically raised, raised Esther. So, so cousin, but in a sense adopted father. And so understand that relationship as we're, we're looking through here. And so now the, the, the king is getting ready. He's going to choose a new, new queen. It's been a while. He's, he's been trying to focus on the battles and stuff like that. But now it's like, okay, I haven't had a queen for four years. It's time to have a, a, a new queen. So the estimates are there is probably about 20 to 25 million women in this, in this empire that he could choose from. That is one great beauty contest to sit there and say there's going to be 20 million women that that are going to be basically shown out there and one of those will be the next queen of, of persia here so we go to chapter two esther is one of 400 it's been narrowed down to 400 women that that are going to be um one of those is going to be chosen to be the to be the next queen so they take these 400 women they spent an entire year at Capri College getting ready to go through and, and beautify these ladies. Everything you can think of. And they didn't spare any expense because they were at Capri and they, they could do that. So they didn't, they didn't spare any expense. They were getting ready for, for this, this beauty contest. And so we look at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Esther chapter 2. Verses 16 and 17. It says, Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of the reign. And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. 
He was so delighted with her that he set the royal, royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vasti. To celebrate the occasion, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor for all his nobles and officials, declaring a public holiday for the provinces and giving generous gifts to everyone. So now Esther, out of all these ladies, is now chosen to be the queen. And then we go down to verse 21. Now Mordecai, remember Mordecai, picture as the, um, Esther's adoptive father, raised Esther. And so he's, he's like, okay, she's now queen, and I'm, I'm, I'm still in this, this area here. So he kind of had a job of sitting by the gate. In a sense, probably part of it was he wanted to kind of keep an eye on Esther and be close to Esther and still, still be able to, to um, communicate with her. So verse 21 of chapter 2. One day as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthana and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole. All right, I, I want you to stop there a second. That's going to come into play a little bit um, later um, in this book here. So, and then this was all recorded in the book of history of King Xerxes' reign. Okay, so we have it to where Mordecai hears about this, this plot by two of the king's men to have the king killed. And he goes to Esther and says, hey, this is what's going to happen. The king, the, the king finds out that it's true. Those, those guys are killed. And it's recorded, in the, it's, it's recorded in the book of history, which, again, is going to be um, important as we, we go along. So then we go on to chapter 3. I told you, hang on here. We're, gonna, we're going for a ride here. So we go to chapter 3, Haman the Agagite. Haman the Agagite comes in. He's the next character in this. And the Agagites are enemies of the Jews from all the way back to Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau back, um, Genesis, you, you look at it, and, and back then there was a falling out. And you had Jacob's descendants and Esau's descendants, and, and they didn't get along from that point on. And so here we have Haman, who comes from the Esau's descendants, and so they're enemies of the Jews. And Haman comes in, he's given this high honor by the king. And so whenever he comes walking down the road, people are supposed to bow down. And they're supposed to worship, worship Haman. And he, he loves this. He's, he's full of pride and he's enjoying the fact that people are going to bow down when they see him. So here comes Haman walking in. Mordecai stands there at the gate and he refuses to bow. Haman sees this and he's ticked. He's like, who is this guy? How dare he not bow down? Does he not know who I am? And so Haman decides, hey, I want this guy killed. I, I want this guy killed because he's refusing to bow down. He finds out Mordecai is a Jew, and he says, not only do I want him killed, I want all of the Jews killed. So you want to talk about like some anger issues with upper you know, leadership here. This is what you're dealing with. You're dealing with a king who's kind of irrational, and then you've got his next in line kind of dealing with the same thing. So he goes up and he says, I don't want just Mordecai killed. I want, like, all of his people killed. And it goes back again. It goes back to his anger that he had with the Jews from before. So we're in chapter 8. I mean, sorry, chapter 3, 
starting with verse 8. Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There is a certain race of people scattered throughout all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. If it please the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. The king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, son of that dude, um, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said, the money and the people are both yours to do as you see fit. So Haman goes to the king and says, hey, there's this group of people who are basically being rebels and we need to destroy them. And he convinces the king that they should be destroyed. So the king ends up taking his ring out. And he makes a decree. And understand that this time, when the king made a decree and he used his ring, you didn't take that back. There was nothing you could do to reverse that. And so the king sets a date and he says, on this date, all these people will, will be, um, you know, killed. And, and so Haman basically has, has the king um, set up for that. What, what we need to understand as we look at this, that the king and Haman don't know yet, is that Esther, the queen, is a Jew. So now we realize that Haman's now said all these Jews are going to be destroyed, and especially Mordecai, not realizing that that also includes the queen. And so when the king did this, obviously he didn't understand what he he was doing there. So chapter 4 comes in, and Mordecai finds out about what's going to happen. He finds out about what's going to happen here, and he goes... To Esther, in verse 5, chapter 4, starting with verse 5. Let's read this. <clears throat> then Esther sent for Haddock, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed as her attendant. He ordered him to go to Mordecai and find out what was troubling him and why he was mourning. So Haddock went out to Mordecai in the square in front of the palace gate. Mordecai told him the whole story including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai gave Haddock a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all Jews. He asked Haddock to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. He also asked Haddock to direct her to go to the king to beg for mercy and plead for her people. So Haddock returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. Then Esther told Haddock to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him in 30 days. So Haddock gave Esther's message to Mordecai. And so, so Mordecai goes to Esther and says, here's the situation. You've got to do something. You've got to go to the king, and you've got to explain what's going on here. And so Esther basically goes back to Mordecai and says, you, you realize how this culture works. Nobody, even the queen, goes before the king unless he's invited. And understand, the queen is just a title. If we're going to be honest, the queen is just another girlfriend of the king with a nice title. Because it says here, the king hasn't seen her for 30 days. 
And so, so Esther goes, if I go in before the king and he hasn't called me, and he's, he's sitting there with a golden scepter, and if he doesn't raise that scepter up, I'm dead. I'm going to die. And so, um, verse 13 and 14 of chapter 4 says, Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. That's where I want us to stop for a second. We've been going through this kind of nice little history here. But what is that really? How does that apply to us? Mordecai goes to Esther and says, Esther, maybe you were put in this position you're in for such a time as this. And that's the question I want to ask you is, are there times, have you noticed times in your life, or maybe you're in in a situation now, or you might be, where God has put you in a situation where you can bring glory to God. And it could be where he's put you in that place for such a time as this. Charles Brown was put in a situation that none of us would ever want to be put in. But he looked at it and he said, maybe God has put me here for such a time as this so that I can share the love of Christ with people who may never have heard it and may never hear it again. And he said, God, have you put me here for such a time as this? And if that's the case, he used it in a way that honored God. Some of us are going to be put in situations like that where we can sit there and say, I believe I'm put in this position as a teacher, as a boss, as whatever the case is for such a time as this. To have that influence, to be able to come alongside and and to help and to bring glory to God in that situation. So God puts us in places sometimes, wherever it is, for such a time as this. And Mordecai went to Esther and said, that could be the case here. So then God puts Esther there. So, so understand that maybe it isn't that you're in a position of being a queen, in a, in a high position. Maybe you're a Mordecai sitting at a gate. Maybe you're just an employee of a company, but you have some kind of influence to where you can sit there and say, God, if I have that opportunity to bring glory to you and, and to, to bring honor to you, show me what that is and show me how to do that. I want to encourage us to really think about it as we go throughout this next week, this next month. Say, God, show me those times that that may be the case, that I can do that. That's what Mordecai was telling Esther, that maybe you were put in that position for that reason. So then we go on to verse 15 of chapter 4. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Excuse me. My, my maids and I will do the same. And then, through it, and then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything Esther had ordered him. 
The next thing we look at, here's Esther. She knows the situation. She knows what could happen. And she says, go and fast and and pray for me. And after that time, I'll go before the king. And she says, if I must die, if I die, I die. So she didn't know. You've got to understand this. Going in, she had no idea what was going to happen when she walked into that room. She knew that the king was going to be there with a scepter. And if that scepter stayed down, she would die. But she also knew that if she didn't do this, not only would she die, but her, all of her race would die. And so she decided that uh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this, and if I die, I die. And that's the question I, I, I wanted to ask us is, <clears throat> are we willing to do something for God? Are we willing to do something for God, even if it may cost us something big? Most of us here, if we say, I'm going to follow after God and do what he wants, we're probably not going to lose our life. But we could end up losing a promotion, losing a job, losing a relationship. There's things that we could end up losing, losing our reputation. If we sit there and say, I feel like this is truly what God wants me to do, but if I do this, here are the consequences that could come out of this. And we have to look at that and say, am I willing to do that? Am I willing to trust God and have a courageous faith that Esther had and say, if I die, I die. If I lose my job, if I lose that promotion, if I lose that relationship, if I lose my reputation because I believe this is what God wants me to do, do we trust God that he's bigger than that? Or do we fear that? Esther was in that situation. And she decided she was going to go and do that. So, so here we have chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. On the third day of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and entered the inner court of the palace, just across from the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, he welcomed her and held out the gold scepter to her. So Esther approached and touched the edge, end of the scepter. Think a little bit of relief was going on in her heart? She didn't know what was going to happen. But he, he holds out the scepter. And it says, Then the king asked her, What do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it's half the kingdom. Esther replied, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come to get today to a banquet. I have prepared for the king. The king turned to his attendants and said, Tell Haman to come quickly to a banquet as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet. And while they were drinking wine, the king said to Esther, Now tell me what you really want. What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it's half the kingdom. Esther replied, This is my request and deepest wish. If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request and do what I ask, please come with Haman tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for you. Then I will explain what this is all about. So here she goes and says to the king, hey, I want to prepare a banquet, but bring Haman as well. So you've got to understand, Haman is sitting and going, yeah, I am going to a banquet with the queen. The queen has invited the king and I to a banquet. So he's got to be feeling pretty good about this. You know, he's got pride as it is, and so this has kind of helped with that. And so we'll go to verse 9. 
And she says, come back tomorrow. So Haman leaves. He's all giddy. Man, Haman was a happy man when he, as he left the banquet. But when he saw Mordecai sitting at the palace gate, not standing up or trembling nervously before him, Haman became furious. However, he restrained himself and went on home. So he's all happy. He's, he's really excited with the fact that the queen has only invited him and the king to this banquet. And as he walks out, he sees Mordecai and all that disrespect. And he says, boy, now I'm ticked again. But he says he restrained himself and he went home. And, as, and then we go down to verse 14. And it says, so Haman's wife, Zeresh, and all the, his friends suggested, set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall. And in the morning, ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. When this is done, you can go on your merry way as, to the banquet with the king. And it says, this pleased Haman, and he ordered the pole set up. 75 feet high. He wanted to make sure that he made a spectacle of Mordecai and that people would never disrespect Haman again. So they, they set up this pole, and they said, we're going to impale Mordecai on that pole, and he's going to be so high that everyone's going to be able to see him from all around, and he's going to send a message. <clears throat> and so that's what we, we have, and we get to chapter 6. Here, now remember earlier, Mordecai has saved the king's life. And everything that had happened was written down in the, in the king's journal there. So chapter 6, how many here have ever had insomnia where you just couldn't sleep? A couple of here? <clears throat> I have it pretty much every day of my life, it seems like. Just, you're just tossing and turning, and you're just like, ugh, so frustrating. And so here, even the king had that same problem. It says, chapter 6, verse 1, that night the king had trouble sleeping, so he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so he could, it could be read to him. Now, I don't know about you, but that would knock me right out. I would have no problem sleeping. As soon as they brought the book in, I'd be like, Wow! you know, I'm gone. And so they bring it in. In these records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of Bithana and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. So he finds out about that, and he's like, wait a minute. I've got I to gotta find out if, if Mordecai's ever been rewarded for this. So <clears throat> this is the cool thing, of the twist that goes on in this story. We're going to go down to chapter, chapter 6, verse 6. <clears throat> and he goes, he goes to Haman, and he says, So Haman came in, and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Haman thought to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horses be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor be dressed in the king's robes, and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the officials shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. So Haman is excited because he's going to be riding a horse. Some official is going to be yelling out in front of him, this is what the king does for someone that the king honors. So he's pretty excited about that. So here's what the king says. Excellent, the king said to Haman. Quick, take the robes of my horse. And do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew. 
you, you can imagine Haman. He's just like, can I change what I was going to say? Because I think what you should do is impale the guy. Here's Haman thinking he's going to be rewarded and he's going to be, you know, riding this horse with these robes and everyone's going to say, oh, what a great guy. But yet it's Mordecai that this is going to happen for. So obviously this ticks off Haman even more. Then we get to chapter 7. Verse 1. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. On the second occasion, while they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, Tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it's half the kingdom. Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I, would, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial of a matter to warrant dis- disturbing the king. Who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded? Who would do so, so presumptuous as to touch you? Esther replied, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright, you can imagine. And it says, before the king and the queen. Then the king jumped to his feet in rage and went out into the palace garden. And so we see here that Queen Esther has the second banquet, and she just goes to the king and says, someone's trying to kill myself and my people. And the king says, who would do that? And it's the guy sitting right next to him. So Haman is like, you can imagine Haman, he's like, oh man, (laughs) oh what? You know, so he's freaking out and he's begging for his life. And you, you come to find out here, how does Haman end up dying? Haman is impaled on a 75-foot pole. The same pole that he set up for Mordecai to die on is how Haman ended up dying. His anger made it to where he wanted to make sure this thing was so visible to everyone that it ended up being how he ended up dying. So then we look at chapter 8. We go on it and we we realize, remember, the king had made a decree. And he said, on this date, the Jews will be attacked and can be killed. That couldn't be reversed because at this point, the queen comes up and says, you would think she could just say, could you just reverse that? That's not how it worked. The king can't just go up and say, we're going to change what I said. It had already been stamped, and it was going to happen. So chapter 8, verse 11. That's what it says. It says, the king's decree, the king makes a decree, and gave the Jews in every city authority to unite to defend their lives. They were allowed to kill, slaughter, and annihilate anyone of any nationality or province who might attack them or their children and wives and to take the property of their enemies. So we see that the king couldn't say, all right, you can't be attacked now. But now he made a decree that the Jews were able to defend themselves, which they, weren't, they wouldn't be allowed to do before that. Now the king comes up and says, I can't reverse that, but now I can make a law saying that you can now defend yourselves. And then we finish up chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. So on March 7th, the two decrees of the king were put into effect. On that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. 
The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the king's provinces to attack anyone who tried to harm them. And no one could take, make a stand against them, for everyone was afraid of them. So we look at this, and we see that God ended up sparing the Jews' lives. And it was because Esther looked at that time, the position she was in, and said, I'm here for such a time as this. I don't know if I die, if I go before the king, but if I die, I die. And it's the understanding of taking a stand and trusting God. Do we take a stand for what we know is right and trust God with the results? That's what Esther ended up doing. To this day, when you hear about the Jewish festival of the festival of Purim, or P-U-R-I-M, that's what they're celebrating is them being saved from this situation here in Esther. And so every year the Jews still um, get together and celebrate that. But it's the idea that Esther understood that she had to do something. She had to take a stand and trust God. That's what faith is. Courageous faith is being willing to take a stand and trust God for the results. Indiana Jones yeah, I used to watch some of those shows. Indiana Jones had one where he was walking out and he was going to walk out over a bridge, kind of like this here, and he couldn't see the bridge. And he couldn't step down and touch it. And so he had to just step down and just trust that the bridge was there. And that's the idea of what faith is, is I'm going to step out and do what I feel God is calling me to do in faith and trust that he's there. Trust that he's going to be there to take care of me in whatever the situation is. Most of us in here are going to have gone through or we're going to go through times when we're going to have to have that kind of courageous faith. We're going to have to step out, not knowing what the outcome is going to be, and say, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you that you have the best outcome already planned out, whatever that is. And the great thing about this is we think about Esther going before the king. The fact that, that we have the same ability to be able to go before God. And we can do that because of the cross. What Christ did on the cross is the golden scepter for us. That we can go before God into God's presence if we understand what Jesus did on the cross for us. And when we understand what the cross is, and what Jesus did for us, that, that he made that relationship that was messed up because of sin. He made that right again. And we accept that. That's holding out that scepter to say, you now have access to God, the creator of the universe, because of what the cross means. Because of what Christ did on the cross, we're able to have that relationship with God. In the same way that Esther could go before the king and not be killed, we can go before our God in the same way if we understand who Jesus is and what he did for us. So I just want to encourage us as we leave here, as we go throughout this next week, this next month, think about the situations where it's like, I'm going to have to have some courageous faith. I'm going to have to do something I feel God is calling me to do, even though I don't know what the outcome is. But I'm going to trust God that he does. Would you stand with me as we pray?
Jesus, thank you so much for loving us. And God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for how you made it so obvious. Even though your name was never mentioned in the book of Esther, it was so obvious that your hand was right there the whole time, guiding the events and putting everything into place. We thank you for the hero of Esther, that she was willing to do what must have seemed harder and possible because she knew that she was there for such a time as that. I pray that you'll just help myself and each one in this room to look at our lives. And if we see that we're in a situation like that, give us that courageous faith to do what we know we're called to do. In Jesus' name, amen.